Let's pray. Here's what we just sang. Holy Spirit, come rest on us. You're all we want. I'll just confess, there's a lot of things I want, especially at Christmas. So Lord, I pray that today as your word is opened and as your spirit actually rests on us, you will turn us from the liars <laughs> who want a lot of other stuff besides you into truth tellers who say, you're all I want. And if you choose to give me anything else, I'll just be grateful. But you're all I want. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so uh, if you didn't get your notes, they're on the uh, chairs in the back of the aisles. Um, here we go. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. This, of course, is one of the most famous messianic prophecies in all of Scripture. And the metaphor is obvious. With a world living in vast spiritual darkness, knowledge will emerge. Truth will emerge. Insight, understanding will emerge. But the Hebrews who heard Isaiah, those who were listening to the Spirit, realized that light is way more than a metaphor in this, especially in this specific passage. Because 700 years after this prophecy, the true fulfillment of Isaiah's renowned words were when Jesus of Nazareth announced, I am the light of the world. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. So on this first Sunday of Advent, our theme is light. And light is the foundation for all of the other themes of Advent. Because you see, without truth, there is no joy, there is no hope, there is no peace, there is no preparation for the coming one. It all hinges upon light. Now, as you probably know, Israel waited for centuries for the coming of Messiah, and hundreds of prophecies foretold how to figure out who the Messiah was going to be. And almost everyone missed him. But this morning, we're going to find out that the Hebrews of Jesus' day weren't the only people at risk for missing the light. So we're going to look through three challenges that the people of God specifically face uh, when God gives them light. So here we go, Here's, crank out your notes, here's your first blanks. Light challenge number one. Those with little light and those with much light are both at risk for missing the light, but for different reasons. Watch this. Throughout human history, God has revealed truth and Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed enough truth in every place, every generation, so that no one has an excuse for rejecting the light that God has given to them. 
Look what Paul says in Romans chapter one in this famous paragraph. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Isn't that interesting? Who, God's giving them light. Every person. But we tend to push it down. Verse 19, because of that, that which is known about God is evident within them. Do you know that everybody knows about God? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. And then he gives a little bit of explanation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been, isn't this interesting, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The creation every day screams, I am. The watch care of even the animal kingdom screams, there's something right about watch care and tenderness and protection. There's something right about being right. All of that is evident uh, and is evident in the creation. So um, look what's taught here. Here's a universal precept. Here's your next blanks. No one has an excuse for unbelief because God has granted everyone enough light that we actually have to suppress it to deny what we all know. Isn't it interesting? Those out in the world suppress the truth. So uh, I love the way that Dennis Kinlaw, an incredible Hebrew scholar, put it. We're willingly ignorant, which sounds like an oxymoron, right? Ignorant means you just don't know. Oh, no, no, no. We're, we lean into ignorance. We suppress the truth. Now, fortunately, there's always been a remnant of people who trusted the, the light that God gave them. So, for instance, the old T, uh, OT prophets were like this. And since they were willing to accept the light that God gave them, by the way, this is what happens. Because they were willing to accept the light that God gave them, God spoke to them. That's how God is. It's a remarkable thing. And so, uh, Jesus contrasted these faithful prophets to the unbelieving Hebrews of his day who got to see him perform miracles and got to hear his astonishing teachings. Look at his reprimand to those who he had revealed so much light to. From Matthew chapter 13, look at this. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. They longed to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So even though the prophets and the OT believers had so little light, they simply obeyed. But Jesus' audience, who had so much more light, weren't ready to trust him. They wanted more before they'd commit. And now let's come 2,000 years forward to our day in our land. We'll come back to this in a few minutes, but suffice it to say that we live in a time and a place where we've had access to more of God's light than any society in any age in the history of the world. And yet, look at the contrast between our lives and many of those who lived before Christ came. 
They heard the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, but they didn't get to see the light with a capital L. We have. Look at this in Romans, this, excuse me, Hebrews, uh, this famous chapter, faith chapter. Look at, uh, pick up with me at verse 32. And what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. How's that for an Old Testament faith? Willing to pay the cost because I know there's a resurrection coming. I don't know much about it, but I believe it's coming because God said it. Quench the fire of power, escape the edge of the sword. Look at verse 35. Women receive back their, their dead by resurrection. And in verse 36, and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. How's this one? They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of who the world was not worthy. You talk about a challenge. I love reading Hebrews 11, and I hate reading Hebrews 11. How about you? I go between underlining it and whiting it out. I mean, this is crazy. So let me, let me uh, look, give us a challenge. Ready? It's in a key concept. Number one, write it in. If the, if the Old Testament believers who lived before Jesus came could take such risks for God, how much greater should my trust be all the light I have. In Hebrews 11, after telling us the astonishing stories from the heroes of the faith, the writer goes on to throw down the gauntlet for all of us. Look at this, the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, they're watching, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. I like, there's two things to rid ourselves. Not just, you know, killing, stealing, sinning, but everything that gets in the way of, Lord, you're all we want. Every obstacle. So notice that. That so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking only at Jesus. He's all I want. The originator and perfecter of the faith. So, Think about this cloud of witnesses with so little light. Think about what they risked. Think of the hardship they endured for the faith, and that leads to key concept number two. Here it is. Despite their limited amount of revelation, the Old Testament believers staked their whole lives on the belief that God was absolutely faithful. And this has huge implications Given the amount of light that God has given to us, it should be much easier to believe than, say, Noah, Abraham, Moses. Yet their testimonies of faith stand in dramatic contrast to a whole bunch of Christians, don't they? And now, let's take a step back. Let's think about those who live before versus 
after the coming of the light of the world, Jesus. As you look at Old Testament times, perhaps it's understandable that most people lived in unbelief since the Messiah, the Savior, hadn't yet been revealed. You can actually feel sorry for the Old Testament believers, right? They hadn't seen Jesus. What what would your life be if you hadn't seen Jesus? Um, But why didn't it become essentially a slam dunk to believe after God came in the flesh and preached and died on the cross and was raised from the dead to save the world. Why, didn't, why isn't that just, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I got, I got born after Jesus came. This is a no-brainer. Well, the answer has to do with light. See, the, there's problems in the two eras. See, remember, we can all miss the light, but for different reasons. Uh, Look at this, the Old Testament era problem, here's your blanks. When we have little light, we find it difficult to believe because of our lack of knowledge. That's why I'm saying, imagine being a Moabite 3,000 years ago. Not much light, right? So you can can almost say, wow, you know, you kind of expect them to miss it. The New Testament era problem, though, this is, I, I hate this, but here it is. When we have much light, We find it difficult to act on it without demanding more light. See, those of us who've been given the incredible privilege of living during the new covenant have vast amounts of knowledge about Christ and his salvation plan, but our challenge can be enough is never enough. And this leads to a truth about those of us who've had the benefit of so much light. Here's the paradox, you ready? The paradox of revelation and faith. This is a twist, but I think it comes right out of what we're talking about. Very often, the more light God gives us, the more answers we require before we'll truly trust him. Ouch. You see, there's this irony related to light. The more information God reveals to us, the more demanding we can become to have everything explained. But what often happens in my life is that before I'll really trust God, I, I want him to lay it all out for me, don't you? I, I want him to answer every one of my questions. I have some tough philosophical questions for God. And I want him to answer them. And I'm not sure until he answers my questions I'm quite ready to really uh, trust him. Did God really say Boy, that temptation's been around a long time, hasn't it? I want him to take away every concern and to give an acceptable response to every argument I can come up with. So let me ask, how much of your life do you spend responding to the truth that you've already been given? And how much of your life do you spend asking God for more answers before you'll do what you already know you ought to do? And taking the challenge from the great cloud of witnesses, how much of your life are you living like they did? You see, they staked their whole lives on the belief that God is absolutely faithful, even when they didn't know much at all. Have you staked your life on it? Challenge number two, light challenge number two, here's your blank, having more light means that we have greater responsibility. Hmm. 
As we begin this section, let's start with a statement about Jesus that lays the foundation. Look at this from John chapter 1. Famous passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, of course. So the Word, capital W here, is the Messiah, is Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice, just exuding from Isaiah 9-2, right? He came, the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light, which, this comes right out of Romans chapter one. Coming into the world enlightens every man. Isn't that remarkable? And now, combining this foundational doctrine with the passages that we're gonna look at in the next few minutes, we can start with, the, uh, with three key concepts. Here they are, write them in. Number one, Christ enlightens every person, every person, and every person has enough light to respond to God. That's why Romans 1 says we're without excuse, okay? Key concept number two, God is a perfect judge. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad it's not your friends who are gonna judge you? Aren't you glad it's not your enemies who are gonna judge you? God is the perfect judge and perfectly impartial. Look in an exhaustive concordance, on your device and just look at the word impartial. Hundreds of times we're told God is perfectly impartial. Key concept number three, every human will be judged by the amount of light they have. So we're gonna deal with the variations in the availability of God's revelation in various times and various places and cultures and Languages. Notice what flows from the key concepts. Because God is the perfect balance of love, grace, truth, and justice, he'll perfectly apply his impartiality at the judgment. And when humans stand before him, everyone will have had enough light to respond to his grace. And notice this. They'll be judged by the amount of light that God gave them. What? Is that in the Bible? I thought it was, you know, uh, believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. You know, and then there's, 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 there's what, what are you talking about judgment? We're, I'm a believer. Um, this is remarkable. We're gonna look at the, this and unpack it with um, five light concepts. Ready? Light concept number one, look at it. It flows right out of Hebrews 10. For if we go on willing, sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, notice, light has come, don't want it. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, now it's gonna, we're gonna see the contrast between the Old Testament light and the New Testament light. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You murdered, you're guilty, you're judged, but now, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Ready? Here it is. You know what, did I just blow through James 3.1? I think I probably, that was probably Freudian. 
I hate James 3.1. Let's finish number two and then go back to 3.1 because it's about Bible teachers. No wonder I skipped it. Okay, let's write it in. Like concept number two, those who reject the truth of the new covenant will be punished more severely than those who rejected the old covenant right out of the text. Okay, back to number one. Again, underline or white out. I go back and forth. Let not many, James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Look at this, like concept number one. Greater knowledge means a stricter judgment. Whoa. All right. Look at John 15 now in light concept number three. If I had not come, Jesus now, Jesus now talking about those whom he's shown all these incredible teachings and miracles. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. Isn't that interesting? Before this, they didn't know the Sermon on the Mount. They, they, they knew that you're not supposed to get in the wrong bed but they had never realized that, wait a second, if you do that in your mind, it's the same. So they didn't have that. Now, all of a sudden, guess what? They now know what Jesus has brought. So listen to it again. This is astounding. This is, this is actually in the Bible. <laughs> Ready? If, it had not come, if I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have seen. Like concept number three, here's your blanks. New light gave them the opportunity to respond, right? That's the great thing about light, but it also gave them a new responsibility for which they were now accountable. Why? Because Humanity will be judged based upon the amount of light that we have. All right, look at Luke chapter 11. This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the depths of the earth, crucified on Thursday, on Good Thursday, and resurrected three days and three nights later before sunup on Sunday morning. Okay, so that, that's it. That's the, that's the sign. It's, it's incredible, the resurrection. So it's notice, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South, also known as the Queen of Sheba, you may have seen that in your Old Testament reading, the Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation's at, generation at the judgment and condemn them. Wow, a heathen queen who knew nothing almost at all about God. Hmm. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now listen to this. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let me ask you, how much light did the Ninevites have? You would have loved Jonah church. If you go to Jonah chapter three, in the New American Standard, 
It's a 10-word sermon. You, this is great. We can do all music. 10 words, that's all you get. 10 words. That's what they knew. And you know what? They fell down in sackcloth and ashes and they repented. Amazing. So here's light concept number four, write it in. At the judgment, those who ignored much light will be condemned by those who responded to little light. Do you realize how contrary this concept is to the beliefs of the typical churchgoer? Who do we think judgment's for? Those sinners out there. Those heathen out there, the pagans, the, the, the atheists, all of those people, we think judgment's for them. In fact, the word teaches that many of those people will actually judge those who had far more light because they responded to the light that they had, while many who had much greater light treated light so flippantly. I want to show you a graph. You'll really like the first one. Um, bring that up. I, I like this graph. See, this is, prob- this is the typical non-believer and the typical believer, okay? Um, don't you like this graph? Look how much more light we've responded to. Uh, but based upon the uh, text that we've been looking through, uh, let me portray it this way. How about the, um, next slide. How, how about the percent of the light that they have that they've responded to? I hate this graph. How many messages have you heard? How many times have you read the Bible? How many times have you said, that's right, Lord, cleanse me so that I I can live above that? Um, Ugly, isn't it? Uh, Think of this. We look pretty good on the first graph, don't we? How little their response is. Uh, But the second graph more accurately reflects the passages that we have just been reading, doesn't it? Um, And in today's church world, guess what? Many of the people on the right picket against the people on the left. Ooh, I know. Um, At the judgment, it'll be the people who responded to little light that they had who will condemn those who had lots of light but chose to not respond to a lot of it. Oh my, why? Because we're judged by the amount of light that we have. Key concept number five, here it is, write it in. Those who have ongoing access to light and repeatedly fail to respond to it are in the biggest trouble. (laughs) Now, Now let's bring this close to home. This concept ought to be a serious warning to us. People who've sat under the clear teaching of the word are at particular risk for failing to see their peril when they receive God's truth but didn't respond to it. See, we like to, we like to grade on the curve. And compared to all those sinners out there, I'm doing pretty well, aren't you? I kind of got this holiness thing down. Oh, Lord, help us in our pride. See, and there's another reliable aspect of this. God's faithfulness ensures that his people will hear the truth repeatedly. Since he's absolutely faithful, he sends his message to people, his people, over and over again. In fact, this is exactly why the Hebrews were exiled into Babylon. 
Let's go back to that time in their history. It's coming to the end of the kingdom. Okay, and we're going to pick up here at the, the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, right before the exile. Ready? Look at this from 2 Chronicles, the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. The Lord, the God of their fathers, look at this, sent word to them again and again by the, his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Look what happened among God's people through the centuries of his faithfulness. He had spoken to them again and again. But there came a point where giving them more light, more sermons, more prophets, more messages, more truth, more blogs, more church services, more Christian music, wouldn't make a bit of difference. At that point, God said, there's no remedy. There's nothing else I can send to you other than the vast light that I already have because you don't want the light. So when this happens, here's God's perspective. Here's your blanks. God's perspective of repeated rejection of his word. My people have ignored so much light, they've become worse than merely unenlightened sinners. Oh no. You mean those people out there that we point the sin fingers at? Yeah. When we repeatedly reject much light, we become worse than those sinners out there. Look at this. This happens in Ezekiel, also at the same time of just before the exile. He's talking to God's people, and, and he did a dramatic, fa in dramatic fashion comparing Judah's sins to, you ready, Samaria, who they hated, right? Those were the Samaritans. They, were, they, they called them dogs. And you ready? And Sodom, famous, renowned for their wickedness. You ready for this? No wonder the prophets didn't get paid and got run out of town. Now your older sister is Samaria and your younger sister is Sodom. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but you have acted more corruptly than they. Sodom, your sister and her daughters have done, not done as you and your daughters have done. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. So you made your sisters appear righteous. God looks at his people and says, I look at you and I look at Sodom and you have made Sodom look righteous. Put down the placards, American church. Oh my. Look at this. Because of your sins in which you have acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. You have made your sisters appear righteous. Graph number two. See, Jeremiah proclaims the same concept in Lamentations 4. Look at this. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. 
So look at what emerges from the word. It's a key concept. Here's your blank. When God's people repeatedly reject his light, they become more wicked than even the spectacular sinners. Sodom, spectacular sinners. They look righteous in God's eyes compared to all the people who had so much light and said, nah, maybe later. I'm not quite ready for that yet, God. And to make sure that no one thinks that this is a, I love it when people say, well, that's an Old Testament concept. Because we all know that God changed when Jesus came. You know, right? you know that fundamental historic doctrine of the nature of God, right? He changed when Jesus came. Before that, he was mean and nasty, and Jesus showed up to say, oh, Jesus, I mean, God, Father, please, 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 start being nice, right? Everything changed. No, but just in case somebody wants to say this is just an Old Testament concept, um, look at what Jesus taught Exactly the same thing when he's sending the disciples out throughout Israel to announce his coming. Look at this from Matthew 11. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And now, if you go through and look at the New Testament, you can see the miracles that happened in these cities. Ready? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, right, those sinners out there, the Sodom of that day, if the miracles that happened in you happened in Tyre and Sidon, which uh, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because graph number two shows that we're judged by the amount of light that we have. So, nevertheless, I say to you, if it will be more tolerable for Tyre and, Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, which descend, will descend into Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. If they had the same Jesus, they would have repented. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Think about what Jesus said. By comparison, Jesus was going easy on the prototypical wicked societies, right? Sodom. Look at what he said about Sodom. If they had had the light that God's people had, they would have repented. So Jesus' greatest warning wasn't given to a wicked world. Jesus' greatest warning was given to God's people who rejected the light. And so as we think about the five light concepts, here's, here's what they brought us to. Ready? Here's your blanks. The biblical understanding of extreme wickedness. You ready? I think we probably all have our big list of extreme wickedness. Don't you? Look at this. This weight of scripture. You ready? The most evil people aren't evil people. but God's people who've had repeated access to the truth and have ignored it. Read that again. The most evil people aren't evil people, but God's people who've had repeated access to the truth and have ignored it. So stop and let that sink in. One of the big complaints of the church today, right, is 
Oh, our society has gone into sin and depravity like it's never been before. We're living in the most evil society we've ever lived in. And think what Jesus' words mean as he looks at evil America, godless evil America, and an American church that's had more light than anybody in all of history, and do the math on graph number two. Lord, help us. So, in that context, these biblical passages are a grave warning to the church, and now light challenge number three, ready? When we have lots of light, we can easily forget how precious it is. Advent, he's here. The light of the world, we sing about him now, today. Look at this, we, we've begun this incredible season and we've been reminded of the wealth of spiritual light that we have. We have easy access to the written word of God and incredible biblical study tools and we've been reminded that not only do we have more light than those who lived in the Old Testament area, listen, listen church, we have more light than most of all of Christian history has had in the church. For hundreds of years, you got burned to the stake if you were a lay person, got a hold of the Bible, and were reading it. The church was keeping people from having the Bible for a couple of centuries. I mean, we have so much light. So this leads to an important, I think these are your last blanks, an important implication of this teaching. The light that God has given to us is an incredible gift, and we must not squander it. As we began this morning, we heard of the great cloud of witnesses. And among them were, were people like, okay, let's go all the way back, Enoch, seven from generations from Adam. Noah, 10 generations from Adam. Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, 500 years before Moses and the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, right? I mean, think, think about that. Um, they lived in times where there were no prophets, no preachers, no Bible, no synagogue, no Sunday school, and no church. Do you realize what we have that they didn't? Do you realize what a privilege it is that we live now in this place so that we can hear God's word this morning and his wisdom and his guidance and his precepts and his teaching? Do you realize how precious that is? And we've been reminded that there's a day coming when every one of us will stand before him. And because he's given us so much light, so much access to biblical wisdom, we'll be in a position to have responded with greater insight than those who came before us. We'll have the, this is the beauty of the light that we have. We'll have the opportunity to testify about our great love for the Savior who we know so much about. And we'll be able to thank our Lord that we lived in a day where we had the great privilege of hearing the words of Christ, the teachings of the apostles, and the whole word of God. We've had the advantage of living in a day when the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all mankind. We live in a day where in any place in this country you can turn on the radio and hear the gospel proclaimed. Think of that. Every single corner of our country. We've lived in a day where we're able to sing some of the most incredible worship songs that have ever been written. We live in a great day of light, church. 
See, we live with such a privilege in this time in history of God's revelation. And this, by the way, you know, what nation will be on the front of the New York Times this morning? Israel. Do you know until 1948, the only people that believed that Israel was coming back were people who believed the Bible? They're coming back, they're coming back. Oh no, they're not, no they're not. So of course we chased a whole bunch of theologians who told us why that was all metaphor. And then boom, May 14th, midnight, 1948. Oh my goodness, this has never happened before. Same language, same people, same back in the land. I mean, think of the light that we have. You know, you know what we have? You know, it seemed absurd when John wrote these words. There's gonna come a day when somebody's gonna be able to control all the buying and selling in the whole world. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's, it's light, folks. Do we not have enough to know that the word of God stands forever? We live in the greatest day in the history of God's light. So, we will be able to gratefully offer, offer up our lives having been a living sacrifice because the light that he gave us. And when we stand before him, we'll be able to thank him for all the grace that he gave us that we were born now and not in Moab three millennia ago or not in Iran today. Oh my. So, when we stand before him, if we've responded to the light, it'll mean that scores of generations of those who have come before us will cheer us on, that great cloud of witnesses. And because we looked at the incredible gift of light that was given to us and we walked faithfully and we fought the good fight and we finished the race. But if we ignored the light or if we chose only to respond to the light that we liked, forgive me, Lord, I like those verses. I underline them. Um, I, I like the stuff that goes on the posters, don't you? I, I don't like the stuff that says, God's people, Sodom looks righteous compared to you. I, I don't like those. But we've had the light. It's been told to us. So notice, if we choose not to respond to the light, it'll mean that generations of the faithful will be heartbroken and they will ask, how could you have so much light, such a precious gift, such incredible privilege to live in a time when you knew things that were never revealed in our day and yet you ignored it, you turned away from it, you squandered it. Pastor Josiah, come on up. As we finish, I wanna ask all of us some questions. Since God has given us so much light, so much knowledge of himself, so much truth and so much grace, what are you doing with the light that God has given to you? Not your neighbor, not the people we pick out in our lives to say, wow, on the curve, I'm doing great. Set all of that aside. And now remind yourself of the number of times that you've heard a really faithful pastor, some of you for 11 years here, listening to Pastor Kurt beautifully unpack the word of God and challenge us every week to greatness. Just, just let that settle in for just a second and then answer the question, 
What have you done with the light that's been given to you? Are you using the light to lead you to repentance when they find anything in your life that's outside of his will? Right now, you know, be, be specific. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and are you seeking the transforming purity of the Spirit so he can empower you to live like Jesus? Are you being salt and light to the world around you so the Savior who saved you can use you to help him save his world? Here's the big question. What are you doing with the light that God has given you? Now, normally with this kind of message, we'd have an altar call, and there may actually end up being some who want to come forward. But I I believe this message has implications for every one of us here. And so I'm not going to have you stand for the response. I've, I've I've ended nice and early. And I did that intentionally so that we will all have time to do business with God as we quietly open our heart and our mind to the Spirit's working right now. During these few minutes, as you sit quietly in this sacred space, I'd like you to look deep inside and answer this question. What are you doing with the light that God has given to you. Pastor Josiah.